The content that's explicit will not come with a warning except for this. So bear in mind what I am saying. This show is explicit content. It's Friday, February 23rd, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, speaking at the CPAC conference, Donald Trump expanded on his plan to turn your angry gym teacher who's screaming at you to climb the rope into your armed angry gym teacher. And you know he meant it because, like his plan with bombing ISIS, he used a profanity to bring forth the wisdom of his proposal. And a teacher would have shot the hell out of him before he knew what happened. I am of two minds on this idea. My first mind is that it's just a stupid distraction, and my second one is that it's a stupid distraction that I shouldn't even pay attention to. There's a good argument for not paying attention to this nonsense, that we should at least talk about things like banning bump stocks or limiting magazines or raising the age to buy a semi-automatic rifle to 21. And those, well, two of those three are measures that Florida Governor Rick Scott is endorsing to his credit. Rick Scott is acting like a politician who knows his actions have consequences, consequences on which he will be evaluated as opposed to acting like a politician who treats ideas just like he's pumping another quarter into the distraction machine. So David Karp, a professor of media and public affairs at George Washington, put out some tweets about the uh, elementary school is armory idea, the SEAL Team 6th grade teacher idea, the Rolling Hills Country Day Green Beret idea. Here's what Karp says. One, it's a ridiculous proposal. It's an unserious proposal. It's an offensive proposal. And the thing is, that's the whole point. The strategic logic of the gun lobby's response to these massacres is generally to deflect delay and wait for public attention to turn elsewhere. Policy subsystems tend not to change during quiet times. If an advantaged interest group, NRA, can wait out the storm of public attention, then it will regain its advantage. So that brings us back to still Carp talking to arm the teachers. The whole point of this garbage proposal is to deflect and delay. They need us to talk about something else. And he ends with saying the best response to this gambit is to ridicule, then pivot. Well, I've got ridicule down. I got, a, I got an arm full of ridicule right here. The teachers do not want this proposal. The police don't want this proposal. The governor of Florida, Rick Scott, doesn't want it. The NRA, they're who wants it. The National Rifle Association backs a proposal that, by Trump's math, would require 700,000 more Americans to carry rifles and firearms. This is an NRA wet dream because it gets a lot more guns in circulation and it does nothing to solve the problem. The NRA really doesn't have a problem with people getting shot and killed, not getting shot and legally killed. And what they do is they expand the definition of legally. Everyone's a bad guy. Who's a bad guy? It's anyone who a gun-toting member of the NRA, or just anyone with a gun, thinks might do them harm. This is what the Stand Your Ground law is about. So now, under this proposal, which is, I know, I'm not supposed to take it seriously, but it just riles me up. So under this proposal... Every school in America, 100,000 schools, elementary, secondary, 130,000 account private schools, will be full of gun owners. And because we know that according to a National Department of Education stat, 10% of teachers are threatened each year and 5% are attacked, it means that schools will become a field day for justifiable homicides. You think police shootings are bad, and when people are shot by the police, the police, remember, are actually trained as law enforcement. Wait until the lunch lady thought you were reaching for a Glock and not a tater tot. 
Since 1990, there have been 22 shootings at elementary and secondary schools with two or more innocent victims. Works out to less than one a year. Even a highly trained former army ranger turned shop teacher, even if that guy were on the scene at one of these potential mass killings and were to stop one or two and save a couple lives, which is, I think, an optimistic, in a weird, bizarre world, scenario, there would be tremendous costs to it. What it would mean is more bodies in our school, not fewer. Well, that wasn't ridicule, but this is Pivot on the show today. Rather than letting the dumb pedagogues with pistols idea distract us from the issues, we will let the issues distract us from the issue of Mark Burnett. The spiel will serve as a reminder wrapped in a jacuse featuring clips from Howard Stern. But first, he's an off-Broadway performer who takes some amazing skills in the traditional field of magic and spins it into something profound. Derek Delgaudio's show is called In and of Itself, and Derek's here with me now. Amicus's Slate's show about the law and, of course, the Supreme Court, Dahlia Lithwick explores the court, explores decisions, arguments, and the justices on the bench to shine a light on litigation in the time of Trump. Get deep into the legal weeds and hear some of the nation's greatest legal minds dissected by one of the nation's greatest legal minds. Yes, I'm talking about Dahlia. In this week's episode, a conversation about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's thoughts on the Me Too movement, and Dahlia unpacks one of the biggest cases of this session of the court, a case that could strip unions of power and influence in politics. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? In and of itself, a new production where Derek Delgaudio performs magic, but I wouldn't call it tricks. It's like the moth meets magic meets memoir. It's about a form, magic, which is rooted in illusion and trying to make that form real. An amazing show. Derek, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. In the show, you talk about your life and you talk about uh, that there is a revelation that you were the subject of a uh, taunting or worse after uh, members of your community found out that your mother was gay. So in the beginning, do you think you were drawn to magic? Because, I mean, it does a lot of things. It gives you a special skill. It gives you um, a skill that people think is extra-worldly. Were you drawn to it because it could deceive people, because it could insulate you? You know, psychologically, what was it about magic? I think that that I was a very uh, private person, private kid, and I, I had a family that was an unusual family. It was different from the rest of the people around me. And so I think that maybe inherently uh, I was drawn to this, you know, the craft of secrets. And, yes. and perhaps if you could learn how to keep a secret, you can protect yourself and the ones you love. Um, I, I mean, that's an armchair uh, therapist <laughs> version of it, but uh, but maybe that's that's why I was drawn to it at such an early age. Did you have, do you have great fine motor skills? You ever been tested? I, I don't think I've ever been tested. No. Are you good at darts? Uh, I'm, I'm not really played other than maybe drunk at a bar from time to time. All right. <laughs> because it does seem that fine motor skills are a real important part, too. You're not just adept at dealing with a deck and from a deck. You're 
perhaps the best in the world, from what I understand. I'm I'm all right at it. It's, it's not, <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I I dropped out of school to do it though. So I mean, I did I did invest time. Yeah. Uh, well, a lot it. of people drop out of school to play Halo and look look what they right, have to right, show right, for. Right, yeah. Right, yeah. No. It, uh, but yeah. No. I definitely have a um, an awareness of my hands in terms of like my mind and my hands are connected in a way that I think most people don't ever have a need to connect their hands in that right. way. Um, and it's just from hours of thinking about it. If you talk about the time that you have to put in, um, is there an, can you estimate that? Just to get, just to take one of your tricks where you do the close-up magic with the cards. Uh-huh. How many hours of training, practice, refining goes into that five minutes on the stage, which is breathtaking? That piece is, uh, in the in the show is a, is a biography section, really. And right. it's... I mean, it's 15 years of of life and experience, um, and so I mean, I when I, I read the the Malcolm Gladwell book when it came out, mm-hmm. it talked about practice in yeah. 10,000 hours, 10, and that 000. sounded that sounded so lightweight to me. <laughs> it was just like really the. 10, well, we're only talking like, about like the second cellist of the Vienna Symphony. We're not talking <laughs> about the best <laughs> magician in the world. The show is a show. It's coherent. It has uh, a through line. It has a thesis. Yeah. Um, the thesis, you know, is borne out with whatever you want to call them, illusions or tricks. Or there are different data points in this thesis. You're yeah. building a case, essentially. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. That's a really great way. You're the first person who said that. But yeah, that's absolutely. I'm, I'm building a case for, for this. And this is, it's necessary to showcase this to define who you are right. as the guy was voted the best magician of a few years ago, a guy who's seen by the other magicians as perhaps the greatest in their field, and also a guy who was trained to be so adept at playing cards that he could have gone in a couple directions. Like, yeah. you could have just cheated people for a living. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a, um, I like the way you put that as building a case because, yeah, um, the tagline for the show, uh, which, you know, you'd see on the poster or something, is identity is an illusion. Yeah. That's what the show is about. It's about the nature of identity and what it is to be and to be seen by others. And then the crisis that's kind of created when those two things aren't aligned. Yeah. Uh, And magic or illusion uh, is a really great metaphor for identity because there is... Uh, what is seen, what you see, or what you experience on the surface, and then there's this sublayer of what exists beneath the surface, beneath you know the things you'll never see about another person or know about them or their life. Right, and so this is why it's the perfect show for 2016 and 17 and 18 because it's about identity, and we're in a time of identity politics. And I was really thinking yeah. about you know the history of magic much more than I do. But I was thinking about the magicians that kind of seize the zeitgeist for a moment. Um, I'm not sure exactly what Copperfield meant. Uh, I'm sure you could tell me. Maybe it has something to do with, you know, television and mass entertainment. Doug Henning was like the the hippie dude, the spirit of evolution. Ricky Jay, who was a guy that you studied under, he was a con artist. I mean, he embraced the idea of the con and would consult with uh, David Mamet about movies about con, and that was of that moment. And now we're talking about identity. Yeah. And you are the magician that's capturing the zeitgeist using this skill, this form to graft it onto a contemplation of who we are and what identity means. Yeah, that's a good good observation that there have been magicians that have been kind of in the zeitgeist and, and where things are. I mean, um, Houdini is probably one of the most, he's obviously the most famous conjurer, right. conjurer to ever live, but he was also a symbol for the time. I mean, when he rose to... Um, uh, to fame in, in the 20s and 30s, uh, that was a time where people didn't have anything. They didn't, they didn't have any money. They didn't have any agency in the world. And then there's this little 
little guy who who comes out of nowhere and he says yeah. nothing can hold me nothing can stop me yeah you know put put me in handcuffs put me in shackles put me in prison there's nothing on earth that can stop me he became a symbol for the world to look at in a time where you know people didn't have anything and they didn't have any power and and, and by the way that is exactly the fascist impulse of to take it on the far extreme hitler was kind of doing the same thing and offering the same magic yeah no. and maybe to a good extent fdr was also but all these strains of you know you don't have much you're a simple farmer i'm offering you some deliverance yeah, for my gifts my conjuring you're absolutely right and then that and that power was um was was very attractive and yeah it's 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 interesting i didn't i didn't set out to make a show that fit in the zeitgeist but i feel like the zeitgeist landed on this show i was i was writing this show and the election hit and there was a responsibility that then kind of fell i think on everyone and everything you realize it just changed what what you were doing and made you more aware of it and so i felt a responsibility to the show and to the to the work and to to the team but then as soon as you know 2016 hit there was a consciousness of what the show means to the world right. that that um, really I became aware of. Can you think of a specific change, without giving anything mm-hmm. away, a change in the show that's specific to that? It changes weekly. Um, I mean, in uh, in the beginning of the show, you walk into the theater and you're asked to choose basically an identity for yourself. There's mm-hmm. a giant wall of cards that say, I am and a different uh, noun. I, I am a bartender. I am a, a mother. I'm a father. I'm a son. I'm a friend. I'm a ninja. Is right, it? right. And more esoteric um, things, too. Completely. I am a do-gooder. I am a failure. Totally. I, I was an umpire one day and a high school principal the next, but I was fake high school principal. And then when you Perfect. said, only stand up, yeah. oh, I don't want to step yeah. on it. So what you do is you identify. You identify yourself. Yeah. And, and so... Um, and this and and this was a very uh, this was a conscious choice of the show was very political before it was political present tense I was using references from the past and you know the I am a man reference right. of the sign of the Memphis sanitation strike the men who carried the I am a man sign it's a powerful gesture it's a powerful image and a really important one and one that's relevant as much now as it was then yeah so I knew I was I was giving people this this moment to confront who they are and and how they see themselves which starts the dialogue before they even enter the theater what I did not anticipate was how delicate that process was and how from week to week people change depending on how, uh, where the world is. For uh-huh. instance, when I first noticed it was um, the week after Charlottesville, the tone of the show, the show had shifted so much mm-hmm. that people started really being more reflective and more, more honest about who they were and more positive. And mm-hmm. like it was a much more uh, united group uh, than than had ever kind of happened before, where everyone was kind of on the same page. Yeah. I don't. I'm more earnest, like fewer more ninjas. Earnest, and, yeah. More earnest, much more earnest. And and I don't want to say it was. I, I obviously I wasn't doing this show in, in uh, 9/11, yeah. but like it felt like that energy of where kind of like the city, and at least the city, the microcosm that existed in the theater, right, was like you know united because there's a, I allow so much room for the audience to to bring stuff to the show to bring themselves and their ideas and their thoughts and feelings to the show you can feel it if you're if you're paying attention and uh, and it really is amazing how the outside world uh, is, a, is a reflection of the show and impacts it so dramatically. Well, I've seen the show twice, and it gave me... It's really useful if you love it the first time to see it the second time, and not just in the how-do-you-do-that way. Um, you cried pretty substantially the second time. <laughs> <laughs> you were really affected. 
by there's a part there are several there's a lot of audience participation the sealed thumbtack in the shoe <laughs> yeah exactly that's yeah. how to beat the lie detector yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a part where someone is asked to help with the narration of the show and then yeah. someone else from a previous show uh reads part of a prediction and, and this woman went on for quite a while about her life story and oh do you remember it went on for a long yeah, time I remember and i was that. born uh, uh, out was... of wedlock and she was really honest really... and i think the audience went with her they, but of course the audience didn't quite know they what know the right happening. version of that should be or yeah, what the tight yeah. version of that and you were really affected by that yeah and i was wondering i was wondering a few things but was it the story itself? Like if you were just someone hearing the story, might you be so overcome? Or might it be that, like that's proof that your deeper goal for the show is working. That if someone got what yeah. she got out of it, that it's more than magic. That day was my judgment was what was affecting me. Mm-hmm. I was I was confronting my own judgment of that person. I, um, I, I had, ah. I had, uh, the the show is is never it's never ending like perpetual even when the show is done and I, and I I don't ever do it again the ideas in the show will persist and they will be something that I fight against and that everyone in the world whether they know it or not struggles with was this idea of you know you look at someone and you judge them and yeah. and what what does that do not just to you but to them by you looking at someone and judging them without knowing the circumstances yeah and so like that woman I I judged her based on her personality uh, the day before. And uh, I did not um, expect – I did not expect her to be that good of a writer. Not that it was anything brilliant, but it was better than I had yeah. expected. And she was more earnest than I expected and she was more thoughtful than I expected. And it was just another example of preconceived notions of how you think, you know, something's done or who someone is and you're wrong – and and it's nice to be proven wrong in a positive way I'm and, and so, allowing that. So your experience of judgment, right, which is to give uh, someone an importance that you, the observer, brings to it. This goes on all the time. Mm-hmm. In the show, it goes on with a brick. A brick is just a mm-hmm. brick or given a backstory. The yeah. brick becomes something else. I read a Times interview where you say, I'll give you a pen. What if I told you Hemingway held that pen? The pen becomes something else. Yeah. So in a way, you, I don't know, celebrate it. You acknowledge it in the show. It's part of the show. Mm-hmm. But then when you do it for yourself with a person, do you feel bad about that? Or were you just experiencing the effect of judgment? Were you telling yourself, I shouldn't have judged? I think we're always going to do it. Like the whole point of like the show is is that like people ask like, well, I want, what did the show do? Like when mm-hmm. I sat down to write this, I was like, what is this show going to do? Not, not just what will it be and what story will tell, but what will it do? And so what I wanted it to do was bring up a little bit of awareness that we are responsible in even the smallest way of shaping each other's identities. It's not just who you are, it's how others see you. And that other see you part is the part that we have control over. We can choose to stop looking at each other in certain ways. And that is an incredibly tall order and I don't expect it to just happen. And I don't expect it to happen even with the individual, including myself, but I do know that if you're conscious of it, you you just catch yourself and like yes. that was a moment where i caught myself not not soon enough but as a performer as someone like the performer in me the guy who has to go on stage and has another person who's going to be you know complicit in creating this thing there's a little bit of judgment like will this person be good are they going to be helpful are they going to be hurtful to the show and you start like navigating those before you even get there but then they show up and they're fine and they do a good job it's like why was i even why right. was, like they they said a couple of things and their actions were a little weird that set off bells and alarms in my head to go, oh, they're going to be problematic. 
and then they aren't or you know and they're thoughtful or they're kind and and that judgment was on me which is the show like they're you know then that's the point of the book is there's what you know and then there's that blank page that you get what are you going to fill it with what 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 you know what do i not know about you and what am i am i going to imagine good things about you or am i going to imagine the worst and that's that's the choice we're given every day with one another Derek Delgadio, his show is in and of itself. It was directed by Frank Oz. So if you were on the fence and you were thinking, wait, does Yoda have a role? In a way, a small role. Derek, thanks a lot. Thank you, buddy. And now the spiel. You know, all week, in fact, for a little more than a week, I've wanted to highlight a detail in a Maggie Haberman New York Times report. But when you're being distracted by the literal destruction of human life and demonstrable charges in the Russia investigation, just the very strong implication of political malfeasance has to take a back seat. So I'm pushing the ejector button of that seat whose occupant is one, Mark Burnett. Mark Burnett is the producer of Survivor, the former producer of The Apprentice, and according to a New York Times deep dive into the cost of the Trump inauguration, a major beneficiary to this day of Trump largesse. Through a Melania Trump pal who was paid $26 million for her services at the inauguration, the reporting in the Times came up with this detail. Ms. Winston Walkoff, that's uh, Melania's pal, her firm also paid the team used by Mark Burnett, the creator of The Apprentice, whose involvement in the inaugural festivities was requested by Mr. Trump. Is interesting for a couple of reasons. One is that Trump requested Burnett's assist. Now, one thing we know about Trump is that the guy prizes loyalty. Well, not from him, but to him. And one reason that the White House is staffed by incompetent and immoral people is that the White House demanded loyalty from all the truly qualified conservative or Republican candidates who might have staffed his White House, so they got a cacocracy. It's not so unusual. Most White Houses wouldn't want people who've publicly voiced opposition to the president. But, you know, Trump is particularly sensitive to slights. So it's interesting that he goes out of his way to request Mark Burnett. Not that Mark Burnett's not good at producing things. It's just that he said this about Trump and Trump's candidacy. Quote, I am not now and have never been a supporter of Donald Trump's candidacy. I am not pro-Trump. And he went on to say in this statement, further, my wife and I reject the hatred, division, and misogyny that has been a very unfortunate part of this campaign. Yet Trump wants to keep paying Mark Burnett through a committee, through a different vendor, but to get money to the guy. You might know why. It's because Mark Burnett owns the footage, including outtakes, of The Apprentice. Now, he says he doesn't own it solely, but legal experts say if Mark Burnett wanted to, he could release that footage. And what might be on these tapes? Reality show insiders tell the Associated Press that Trump raided female contestants and talked about which ones he would like to sleep with. The allegations are based on interviews with former crew members and contestants as well. The Trump campaign is denying the report, calling the claims outlandish and unsubstantiated. Outlandish and unsubstantiated. Well, yes, so long as the tapes aren't made public, they lack full substantiation. But unsubstantiated means not supported by evidence. And witness testimony is evidence. Here's a former producer of The Apprentice, Bill Pruitt, talking to NPR's Kelly McEvers. Now is the first time Bill Pruitt has talked about what's on those tapes. Though he can't go into too much detail. He did sign a non-disclosure agreement. He says it happened when Trump and the producers would talk about who to fire. Was it just about women? 
Mostly no, about women? Very, very much a, a racist issue. It was about race. Yeah. About African-Americans, Jewish mm-hmm. people, all the above? Mm-hmm. Yep. When you heard these things, there's the audible gasp that is quickly followed by a cough. Kind of like, <gasps> you know, and then, <clears throat> yes, and, uh, anyway, you know, and then you just sort of carry on. Outlandish and unsubstantiated. So let's hear what the AP says were on those tapes that Burnett, who was revealed to still be in the pay of Trump, has. Let's see what outlandish things are on those tapes. The AP reports eight former crew members, eight, recalled that Trump repeatedly made lewd comments about a camera woman he said had a nice rear, comparing her beauty to that of his daughter Ivanka. What lewd comments? Who would compare someone's beauty to that of his daughter. Outlandish. If Ivanka weren't my daughter, perhaps I'd be dating her. You know? <laughs> Stop it. Oh, it's so weird. Outlandish and unsubstantiated accusation number two. During one season, Trump called for female contestants to wear shorter dresses that showed more cleavage, according to contestant Gene Folks. Several cast members said Trump had one female contestant twirl before him so he could ogle her figure. Randall Pinkett, who won the program in December 2005, said he remembered the real estate mogul talking about which female contestants he wanted to sleep with. He said, quote, he was like, isn't she hot? Check her out. Kind of gawking. Something to the effect of, I'd like to hit that. That is outlandish. And by the way, outlandish is exactly Howard Stern's goal whenever he invited Trump on his show. You know, the National Enquirer, Howard, did a story on me not so long ago that in the history of the world, Nobody has gotten more beautiful women than yeah, I have, okay? That, Which is a great compliment. <laughs> yes. In fact, many years ago, I was on your show, and you were putting all of them up in posters, you remember? Yeah, I, I had a chart. How was this one? How was that and one? And by How the way, this? I'm sure I missed thousands. You missed yeah, a lot yeah, of yeah, ideas. Actually, some of the ones on the chart were known. not victims. Understood. Okay. But in the same interview, Trump, of whom it is outlandish to think he talk in a derogatory fashion about women's bodies, said this into Howard Stern's microphone, which you knew was being broadcast. Well, you know, Steffi Graf, no, no, Graf is a great girl, and she's one of the greatest. She's not hot, though. She's got she's, one of the greatest bodies ever. She's beautiful. But what about the face? Honestly, Robin. Face. Fa- all right, bodies are 10. What's the face? Well, you never get to the face Oof. because the body's so you know. <laughs> Look, I, of course, could play tons more clips of stuff Trump actually said. The stuff he's alleged to have done and said on The Apprentice is very close to what he's done in other forums or possibly even worse. And as far as who is alleging outlandishness and unsubstantiation, I'm going to quote from the uh, AP report in full. The Trump campaign issued a general denial, quote, these outlandish, unsubstantiated, and totally false claims fabricated by publicity-hungry, opportunistic, disgruntled former employees have no merit whatsoever, said Hope Hicks, Trump's campaign spokeswoman. I'm going to read to you a statement that was made a couple weeks ago from John Kelly. Remember this one. Rob Porter is a man of true integrity and honor. I can't say enough good things about him. He's a friend, a confidant, and a trusted professional. Who wrote that? Daily Mail and Political Report. It was written by Hope Hicks, who stuck to the idea that the charges against Rob Porter were outlandish and unsubstantiated until documentary evidence substantiated them. The problem isn't outlandish and unsubstantiated Rob Porter, Mark Burnett, Hope Hicks, or Donald Trump. It's that all those people are outlandish and substantiated. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Pierre, BNMA, and I have never met. What number am I thinking of? No, it was eight. 
Mary Wilson is the just senior producer who, after Harambe, suggested all zookeepers be armed with tranquilizer darts or at least Twitter accounts to beat back the memes. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And Steve, is this your card? It's not. It's a Metro card. It's got like 225 on it. Good for one ride. Okay. The gist. Illy Nistassi had one of the great butts in tennis history. Nobody ever mentions that. Oomperu, depperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening.